Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 5 of the series, we're discussing Battlegrounds, the who, what, where, when, and why of some of the most epic showdowns in history. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared. Tonight's episode is a testament to that. And you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit my author's website, BradyKreitzer.com, for news, updates, and events. You can visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. And of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. Season 5 has been wonderful so far, and we've gotten a lot of feedback, and today you take center stage. One of the great things about this series uh, is that I have a lot of ways you can reach me. And I always say I will respond if you have reached out to me. I definitely have. And not just like cheap, chintzy little emails. Uh, We have a couple different dialogues going on as we speak uh, with anyone who chooses to jump in. So what I want to do today uh, was take some listener questions and read some listener feedback. Because what I found is that these are questions I get a lot, and I think you will benefit from it because you probably have the same questions too. So we take a break from the normal typical uh, wartime episode. We'll be back to it next week. And we'll go through some of the better emails I've gotten and comments on Facebook um, and maybe give you some opinions of my own. Now, I will preface this by saying I try very hard in this series not to inject too much of myself into it as far as my opinion. I think it's very important to give you the facts with as little bias as possible. It's not totally impossible to eliminate that. And let you make up your mind. And again, many of you have written in and given me uh, your responses. And I appreciate that. Uh, But today I will, you know, give you some of Brady. Give you some of myself. Um, And that can be a dangerous thing. So just remember, opinions are great. We all have them. Um, And things tend to be a little more gray than they are black and white or one side or another. So without further ado... Uh, let's jump right in. Now, keep in mind, these have been coming in for about the last six months. I've responded to everyone online, but we haven't had a uh, feedback episode in a while. So again, I want to save up some of the good ones and give you some thoughts. Uh, The first email comes from Christian in Denmark. Um, And I'm not making that up. We have listeners from all over the world, uh, literally every continent with the exception of Antarctica. So, Uh, If anyone knows anyone down there, uh, give them a call, tell them to tune in. Uh, You'll be the first person, if you are in some strange laboratory in Antarctica, uh, to do so. Uh, I saw the movie The Thing. I probably won't respond back to you if you write me for that reason. Uh, But that's the last one we need. Uh, At any rate, this comes from Christian from Denmark. An important question. He says, uh, hello, Brady. I just wanted to write you and thank you for your series. 
It's been really informative and I enjoyed immensely. To me, Season 2 was really the cream of the crop. That's on the ancient world, by the way, if you haven't listened yet. I really prefer when you use several episodes to discuss a subject or a time period. For example, your episode on the Winter War was pretty good, but I felt like you were rushing through it most of the time. Of course, I understand that writing and producing podcasts up to an hour is not all simple or a short task, but I have immense respect for the amount of work you put in. But if it was to move, but if I was to move the show in any direction, I would use more time on the multi-episode themes and battles. Thanks again. Keep up the great work. Christian from Denmark. So Christian really hits on something important. If you've listened to Wartime from the beginning, and many of you have, I'm grateful, you will find that Season 1 covers uh, a unique series of events uh, over a span of a season. Season 2, The Ancient World. Season 3, The American Revolution. And then Season 4, we began to jump around a little bit. Uh, We did major characters in in world history. Uh, Some you know, some you don't. And we continued that tradition here in Season 5. Christian, there is a reason I did that. And it is not because one is better than the other. I think there is some real merit to doing entire seasons uh, on one topic. It lets you really dig in, go in detail, and follow along, and ultimately learn a lot more, uh, myself included in that. Uh, But the reason in 4 and 5 that I made that change was because I realized very uh, early on, and by that I only mean 3 episodes in, only 45 episodes, that's all it took, uh, that if you didn't like or weren't interested in the American Revolution... Uh, you probably wouldn't listen to Season 3 at all. Likewise, if you had no interest in the ancient world, you wouldn't listen to Season 2. And in Season 1, if you didn't care at all about the frontier in North America in the 18th century, you wouldn't listen either. What I decided to do in 4 and 5 was to, again, focus on individual topics each week that varied drastically in terms of subject and geography. And the reason was because, quite frankly, we need listeners. We need to mix it up. We need to draw people in. And the hope is, if they come for, say, Boudicca or Herbert Hoover or whatever, uh, then they'll explore some other things. So it was a tactic to gain listeners. You very well, if you're listening now, may be listening because of that. And that's fine. It keeps things fresh. It keeps things even. Um, And I think we will actually go back to that uh, season-long serial kind of study. Uh, But, Christian, that's why for Seasons 4 and 5, I decided to do that. You're not wrong. Uh, It's not for everyone, uh, but it does help to build the listenership, and it keeps things, you know, uh, fresh for me as well. So, Christian, thank you for writing in all the way from Denmark. Uh, Much appreciated. Next question uh, comes from Brad. Uh, This is a fairly recent one, too. Brad... And I were just in communication this week. Uh, Brad writes, uh, I'd love to hear hear an episode on the genesis of the Arab Spring, including an overview of the different inputs that caused it and what the outcomes of the Arab Spring were and where they stand today. Uh, That would be interesting, Brad. Secondly, uh, I would like to look at the lead-up to Benghazi from the stateside view, specifically the higher-up chain of command, including the White House, Hillary Clinton, and John Kerry. Uh, so this is an interesting question too, and Brad, thank you for that. Uh, Brad very graciously allowed us to use this on this episode. Um, the Benghazi episode was was really, uh, I think, important 
because at the end of the day, in this a very intensely political season, uh, you're going to hear a lot about that word and that place. And all of it, whether good or bad, is done in the context of uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Whether you're for her or against her, whether you absolve her or believe some nefarious action occurred. Uh, but what I want to do in that episode, and if you've listened to it, uh, episode one of season five, I wanted to talk about what actually happened in Libya uh, over those period of days uh, when the Battle of Benghazi took place. When you, again, hear about the story today, it's all about the higher-ups. As Brad said, why not talk about them? Well, honestly, I think, and I said this to Brad in an email, we've litigated that enough in our society. I mean, you can find that in a lot of different places. But when you focus in on the politics, you lose the story on the ground. And that's, I hope, what this season is all about. So, I'm not saying it's not important. I'm not saying I, I did that to uh, avoid talking about an issue. Uh, I did it to specifically put the onus where I think it belongs in a series like this, which is the men uh, fighting on the ground in Benghazi uh, over those 13 hours. So, uh, Brad, thank you for the email. Uh, and I think a lot of you had that question. I've gotten it before. Uh, again, you can find that information in a lot of different places. Uh, some sources you may trust, some you may not. Remember, there's always that political bend to it. Uh, and uh, they could probably do it a lot better than I can. So that's why we did that for episode one of this season. Okay. Uh, next email comes from Sarah from Texas. Uh, Sarah writes, Brady, uh, I've noticed a lot of movies coming out this year fo focusing on the Civil War uh, from new perspectives, specifically Free State of Jones, and within the last few years, Django Unchained and 12 Years a Slave. What do you account for this? And do you see a larger pattern here? That's Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, I like this episode. I know it's not on a subject in particular, but we do get to talk about movies and history and politics, and that's all important. For me as a historian... When I see these new movies coming out, I do see a pattern, and it's pretty recognizable. It takes the focus off of the soldiers during the American Civil War and puts them on other people involved, particularly uh, the enslaved person in the American South. If you saw the movie Lincoln with Daniel Day-Lewis, it's wonderful. It is a Civil War movie, but there's no fighting in it. I think maybe like two minutes worth of fighting. Uh, if you saw 12 Years a Slave, it was excellent. Pre-Civil War, antebellum, but important. This is really uh, interesting. And as historians, these societal shifts are the kind of things we get excited about. Um, and what we can say is that as a society, historically, uh, we're shifting our view. I always like to say history is not about finding new things, but looking at something old in a new way. And I think that's pretty indicative when you look at, say, the 1980s to now. Uh, from the 1980s through the 1990s and even the early 2000s, you saw a lot of Civil War movies. Uh, the Killer Angels was made into Gettysburg. 
uh, you saw glory, uh, you saw gods and generals. And all of these things put the focus on the soldiers, especially the officers. Uh, but what these new movies are doing, again, is shifting the focus. And they're not wrong for doing that. Uh, it's just a new way of looking at the time period. Clearly, the plight of the slave is the new, I guess you can say, approach these films are taking. Now, some people look at that and they're instantly turned off. They say this is political correctness. Uh, they say they're rewriting history. But you have to understand it's really nothing like that. Uh, history is wide and it is varied. And that war meant different things to different people. Those films, with the emphasis on slavery, uh, are excellent. Uh, 12 Years a Slave, I think, is one of the best and most well-done historical films I've seen. Now, remember, it's a film. It's not actual history in that um, it's the source itself. I mean, it's a director who's an artist making artistic decisions to get a message across. That's true for every movie. I got into a spirited argument with someone on Facebook uh, about the movie American Sniper. Uh, because I made the comment that it wasn't history. And what I meant uh, was not that it didn't happen. What I meant was it was a film made by a director, shot a certain way, showing certain things to send across a certain message. It wasn't the totality of a person's life, uh, but it was recreations of certain elements of their life. And that's true for every movie ever. Uh, some movies like Braveheart fail pretty ex extraordinarily. Um, I thought American Sniper was a wonderful movie, by the way. Uh, but again, it gets to history. Uh, what are you seeing? So that's kind of the view we have of it. Uh, some of this also gets into uh, the debate over Confederate monuments and the Confederate battle standard, by the way. Uh, my one-hour episode on the Confederate flag, the history of it, uh, with no real political strings attached, uh, is still available at the website, wartimepodcast.com. If you purchase that, uh, you can get it for free, but the money does go directly to keeping the podcast alive and well, so please check that out. But it gets a little bit of that. One thing I hear a lot is that uh, our history is being rewritten or our history is being taken away. When you take down a monument to a Confederate general, or you take down a Confederate flag, you're erasing history. And again, I really don't see it that way. History changes over time, especially how we view it. The events don't change. The people involved don't change. But the way we perceive it changes. So here's a good way of thinking about it. Um, some will say that you are rewriting history because you simply have gotten too far away from what it was really about. And, and it's a disservice to the people involved. And that's fair. That's fine. But you could also say that maybe up until this point, we were just too close to the event to see it for what it really was. Maybe we're not rewriting the history of the event. Maybe we're seeing it clearly for the first time. 150 years is, is a lot of hindsight. Uh, you can take your pick, wherever you stand. I think there's a happy medium. I'm not the kind of person that advocates taking down Confederate monuments uh, at battlefields and historic sites. Uh, I think the history of those monuments, aside from the history of the person, uh, is just as relevant. But on the other side, uh, I also don't believe we should be naming elementary schools, uh, especially new ones being built, uh, after Confederate officers. Uh, after all, remember, these people did 
rebel against our country and our constitution. Uh, so, you know, there's two sides to that. And that's sort of where I stand on it. But as far as movies go, again, this is not a conscious attempt to rewrite anything. It's just a different way of viewing something very old. Uh, so that's kind of where I stand on that. So, Sarah, thank you for that. Uh, moving on. We have a good email here from uh, Jameson. And Jameson uh, writes from the Great White North, Canada, uh, in all of its maple leaf glory. Uh, by the way, I am from Pittsburgh, uh, the empire capital of North America. Uh, and Pittsburgh just won the Stanley Cup. If you are a Canadian, maybe you like the Maple Leafs or the Calgary Flames or the Edmonton Oilers. Um, I, I, I weep for you as the birthplace of hockey uh, that your teams are not better. That being said, my team is made up of mostly Canadians. Uh, so you can always fall back on that, I guess. Sort of the hilarity of it all. At any rate, uh, Jameson writes, Hey Brady, I just wanted to write you a quick note of thanks for doing such an amazing job with your podcasts. As an amateur war historian, I've really enjoyed listening to your amazing podcast. In fact, they have oddly enough helped me overcome some serious injuries I sustained while I was in the, uh, in the military in Afghanistan. I now walk seven kilometers from my office to home every night in order to strengthen my leg muscles and after recovering from some serious surgery to repair my knees, blown on kneecaps are tough to recover from, your podcast goes a long way. Thanks. That's from Jameson. Uh, Jameson, brother, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. It's always nice to hear from men and women in the armed forces. Uh, and it always amazes me uh, where this podcast goes. Uh, I love podcasts, not just making them, but listening to them. I'm sort of like probably unhealthily addicted to podcasts because they talk about any subject you want. Like if you want a one hour podcast on Star Wars or Game of Thrones or uh, spicy food or whatever, you can have them. It's really the democratization of radio. If a guy like me can talk about history on a weekly basis, that goes a long way. So uh, I like that email. Uh, and not just because he was so complimentary of me. I mean, uh, this is a person who is really getting a lot from this, and that's what I wanted all along. Uh, when I first listened to podcasts, I didn't think there was a history podcast that really reached the full potential of what a history podcast could be, at least from what I listened to. I was desperate for anything, uh, and I wasn't finding it. And so I decided to make my own. And that's what also, I think, uh, guides me in the... Uh, in, in the decisions that I make uh, with my own professional work as well. Uh, so that's important. Uh, getting back to an earlier email from Brad. I forgot about this part. Shameless self-promotion. He wrote at the end, uh, on a second point, I would love if you were able to write a longer narrative. A book, hopefully. Thanks. Uh, and I told Brad, you know, I have written a book. I've written five books. My fifth book. Uh, is coming out uh, this fall in November. It's on the Catanning Raid, uh, which occurred, if you've listened to this season, uh, in 1756. My fifth book. They're all available on Amazon.com. Most are available on my website, BradyKreitzer.com. Uh, pick them up. If you order directly from the website, I'll, of course, sign it for you. And somebody whose email was read on the podcast tonight is going to get a brand spanking new free copy of my new book, War in the Peaceable Kingdom, 
the containing raid of 1756 this fall. So you have to wait a little bit, uh, but it's coming. The cover is on Amazon. It's on my website. Uh, so check those out. Uh, all of them focus on the revolutionary period. Again, I focus on the frontiers of empire. So that's a theme that runs throughout it. Uh, but uh, I'm very proud of them. So Amazon.com, BradyKreitzer.com, BarnesandNoble.com. They're in every Barnes and Noble in the country. Not bad for uh, a poor schmo from Pittsburgh. Um, <clears throat> but at any rate. Okay, now we're going to start to get into the really heavy stuff. Um, where I'm sort of pressed against the wall a bit. Uh, where my opinions uh, need to be revealed. I'll try not to be too controversial. I'll try not to turn anyone off, but I will be honest with you. I think honesty is important uh, as we talk about this. Uh, the first thing I wanted to do, though, and I love this, is read some reviews uh, from from the iTunes website. Now, I firmly believe that if someone is going to write a review, they do it for one of two reasons. They either do it to write something that's very helpful, and most of you have. Five stars on iTunes goes a long way for visibility. Or... Uh, they do it to totally bash you, which I think is actually uh, very, very funny. Um, and I do you know, take it seriously, so I'll read some. Uh, some of them are very honest, and and I appreciate that. And they like it. Here's one from uh, one particular person. I won't say any names. I don't want to call them out. Um, but he says, I just stumbled upon your website and was captivated by your presentation of history. I have shared this with my friends who are equally impressed. I plan to listen to every podcast and await future ones. Thank you. Uh, five stars. I love that. I love to hear that. And I know that you have to go out of your way to write that. And you do it without getting a response or a review yourself. And that means a lot to me. It touches me a lot. Um, and then there's others that I think are critical, but uh, very fair. And any criticism that's fair is good criticism. Uh, so here's one from January of 2016. While I like his podcast, it is delivered from a decidedly left perspective. Do not be fooled while it is informative and entertaining. Thank you. Brady does not even bother to present any contrary points of view. In that sense, it's a place to start in order to encourage students of history to seek out counter arguments, factual inquiry, and critical thinking. Brady does not even qualify his prejudices. Yet, despite his clear bias, it will provide a base point in you or your students will use as a jumping off point for further exploration and discussion. Uh, I can't argue with that. Now, as to my political leanings, left or right, uh, I, I'm sort of taken by that. Um, I've been called a, uh, a left-wing uh, liberal hippie. I've been called a right-wing fascist. Uh, I like to think I disguise it a little bit better, uh, but... Because um, I'm really not even sure myself, to be honest. Uh, but that is that is true. That is important. Uh, the idea that this is a starting point. There is a, a great lie in history. And that lie is that historians are unbiased. And that's just not true. We all have biases. You can't hide them. You can't eliminate them. If you are a historian, if you want to work, your bias is your greatest weapon. Uh, but you have to recognize it. And learn to control it. You have to understand how it helps you. And more importantly, how it hinders you. Uh, again, you'll never eliminate it. We're not robots. We're human. We're people. Uh, and we all have opinions. 
Uh, we all have biases. And again, that's what makes you unique. So I like that iTunes review. I think it's very, very fair. Some of them, however, uh, I think are maybe a little unfair, but also hilarious. So I'll read this too. Uh, here's one from two days before my birthday. Ouch. Yikes. Okay. Uh, he says, this podcast is pitifully biased, presenting a reliably progressive view on each topic. Sadly, I doubt he even realizes it. It's frightening to think he teaches others. And of course, that is a one-star review. Um, ouch. Yikes. I will try to do better, I suppose. Uh, again, I realize, again, we all have biases. Um, that one was particularly scathing, especially considering some of the other stuff available. I think I'm like a fairly middle-of-the-road guy. Uh, but okay, we'll go to another one. Um, this one calls me a YouTube copycat. As I listened to the Crazy Horse podcast, expecting to hear something of value or different, turned out to be a recap of the History Channel's biography of Crazy Horse. Not the best recap. This is in reference to the life of Crazy Horse, which we talked about in Season 4. Um, and if you're doing a, a quick you know, 45-minute presentation of a person's life, you do basically have to hit on the same topics. Uh, for the record, I didn't have anything to do with a History Channel documentary. And you know that because I didn't talk about aliens or spaceships or pawn shops at all. Uh, but I will keep that in mind. That's one day after my birthday. My two one-star reviews. I got 36 five-stars, two one-stars. But that's, that's fair enough. Uh, so thank you guys. I like those a lot. I'm not reading you the good ones. They're mostly good. And again, all of these are valuable. So uh, I appreciate it very much. Okay, so uh, with the uh, iTunes reviews out of the way, please visit them. If you want to give me a good review, please do. I appreciate it, and I read them all. If you want to give me a bad review, uh, make it a good one. That is to say, make sure you, you really cut deep because um, I also get a kick out of those, and I will read those on the air. Okay, so we'll get to some big questions. These are the two finalists for uh, who will receive the very first copy of War in the Peaceable Kingdom this fall. Uh, and again, you know, email me if I read your name, send me your contact info so you uh, make sure you get your book. Here's a good one. Uh, this one's from Craig. Good day, Brady. Uh, I'm 23 years old from North Battleford, Canada, and I love wartime. I found your podcast about this time one year ago, and I still re-listen to them all. You are a fantastic historian. Thank you very much. Uh, and please keep it up. I have one question from season three, if that's okay. And also a suggestion for an episode later this season. We'll focus on the question. Uh, my question simply is, what did George Washington have to gain from the American side? Why be a patriot? Why the change? It seems the British were treating him quite well amidst his blunders. To me, it seems very risky and unwise for someone like Washington to be the head of this rebellion. You did say he may have been one of the first to be hanged for treason, and there is no guarantee for success. Uh, Craig, that is an awesome question. I, I wrote a book about George Washington. Uh, his name has appeared in every single one of the five books that I've written uh, in some way, shape, or form. One of them being in the title of my very first book. And I think Washington's an interesting character, but not the Washington that we know. Not the Dollar Bill Washington. Uh, not the Revolutionary General Washington. But 
the Washington of the 1750s and 60s. And this fascinates me. Because the Washington of the 1750s and 60s was a man who was in his early 20s and utterly obsessed with the British military. That's all he wanted out of life. His brother was in the British military. Uh, he wore the red coat. He, he admired his brother greatly, almost like a father. And he saw his future as one climbing the British ladder. How does that guy, a guy who wears the British uniform himself in the French and Indian War, go from that to leading a rebellion against the British Empire? That's a time period we don't study a lot. And it's because, like most things in history, it's not black and white. It's not red or blue. There's a gray area. There's a blending where historians live. Uh, what drives Washington to that? Well, I take a little bit of a jaded view of this because I ask myself, how do politicians function? How do political circumstances occur? And more importantly, in an empire, how do rebellions develop? And I see a lot of patterns. And one of the undeniable patterns is that they're almost always led by someone who's operating within the framework of power already with significant financial uh, uh, stock in that empire who believes that through separation they can gain more. Washington was a Virginian. The Virginians were the wealthiest of all the 13 North American colonies. Uh, he had a plantation. He was part of the planter class. He made a lot of money. By the way, like all great men in history, how did he make most of his money? He married a rich woman. Napoleon did it too. Uh, so good for them. But at any rate, um, he's part of that. This isn't a guy who's coming out of nowhere. Washington is not a guy who's rising up from the streets and taking down an empire. He's a guy who's part of it. He's a man who, uh, again, functions within it. And a man who stood to gain pretty significantly financially uh, after it occurs. Now... A book came out uh, in the 1980s, maybe early 90s, by a historian named T.H. Breen called Tobacco Culture. And what it basically discovered was that the people who were seeking revolution almost more passionately than anyone else, aside from the, the folks in Massachusetts who were under military occupation, were the Virginians. Which was really interesting because the North Carolinians were lukewarm on rebellion. Georgia, as we've mentioned, didn't even send a delegate to the First Continental Congress. They were so lukewarm on rebellion. But Virginia was pretty gung-ho all along. And it was because they, of all the colonies in North America, uh, those 13 colonies, stood to make the most money with the empire out of the way. I mean, they produced what the world wanted. Tobacco. Tobacco. Uh, they felt like they had the empire exactly where they wanted them. So you could say financially there was a windfall there. Uh, I'm not going to take that away from Washington and say he wasn't a great man. He didn't do incredible things. Uh, but Washington wasn't alone either. So there's a lot of sides to the revolution, which I think is very interesting. Uh, I don't think that's Washington's primary motive, financial motivations, but I think it's an important one. And there's a lot of that. Again, you know, this is a launch pad uh, for you to investigate, but I think Washington, who was always looking to advance in life, whether militarily in terms of rank, economically in terms of, of wealth, and of course socially in terms of status, probably saw that one of the many positives 
of a Republican government, of self-government, was that that financial uh, key, uh, that financial control. So I think that's interesting. If you disagree with me, that's the point. Um, historians don't just sit around and agree with each other. We don't sit around and quiz each other like we're playing Trivial Pursuit. Uh, we have interpretations. And I think that's an important one. Not the only one, but again, like I said, an important one. So uh, thank you very much, Craig. Another Canuck. Uh, another Canadian. So great. It's good to hear from you guys. Okay. Uh, I want to finish the episode with by far uh, the most epic, passionate meltdown of a rant I've ever heard. Uh, and it's from a loyal listener named Chris. And I don't want to ruin the ending, but Chris, you're getting a book for this one, buddy. You're the winner of Season Five's free book giveaway. Uh, so hit me up with your contact information when you get a chance. Um, Chris is fully ingrained in the election cycle. He is fully ingrained in the political history of this country. And like all great historians, he's seeking out patterns. Uh, and he wrote just an awesome, I won't even call it email, I'll call it an op-ed piece, uh, about one of the episodes we just recently did on the Confederate Revenge, the burning of Chambersburg. So I'm going to read this. And uh, I'm going to do my best to do it justice because... Again, like I said, it's it's nothing short of epic. But Chris is one of our great listeners. He's a guy who's been around from the beginning, and he writes me all the time. And I, I can't not read this. So, Chris, thanks a lot. Um, let's give it a go. Hi, Brady. Hope you're having a nice summer, and happy belated Father's Day. Thank you, Chris. Uh, happy Father's Day and Mother's Day to all of you as well. Uh, just got around to listening to the Chambersburg episode on last evening's commute. Nothing like, by the way a good podcast to make the time go by sitting in a car. Audiobooks uh, are great too. Excellent episode, by the way. Thank you. Uh, it was a chapter of the civil war. I admittedly did not know much about, and you were spot on in your analysis with the need to highlight the ugly side of the civil war. Appropriately, we as a country and a people collectively pay proper tribute to the gallantry and bravery of the soldiers who fought on both sides of the conflict while recognizing the brutality and horrific nature of early modern warfare. Uh, right on, Chris. Uh, the battlefield savagery, while recognized, however, does seem to get lost in the pageantry and significance uh, with the bigger picture of the events. And that is really uh, what is lost. Uh, what's lost is the true depiction of the horrific, devastating, and carnal acts of brutality that were more commonplace than anyone would want to admit. And since it doesn't fit the grandiose narrative, gets shoved to the sidelines of history. Oh, Chris. Poetry, man. So well done. But this episode also hit a nerve with me, and it touched me on a fear that I harbor as I watch current events unfold before us. I do believe we have all been sensitized to the idea that while the American Civil War was horrific, and all that is unholy, which it was, parentheses, his words, not mine, it is incapable of ever happening again. One thing I've learned studying history is the awful cyclical nature of events and human depravity. Today, I harbor the fear that as a society, we have lost our moral compass and the societal polarization of ideas and attitudes gets worse every day. I can't agree more. I personally don't care what party, that's in quotes, people align with, but the two presumptive candidates on both sides of this election, to me, represent the most vile, reprehensible, and destructively polarizing personalities that could have ever been dreamt up. 
Hard to argue with that. Throw in politicians actively arguing for the criminalization of free speech. If you don't buy into the climate change cult, quote, or, uh, parentheses, uh, what a slippery slope that would be. And the willingness of other politicians to abandon due process for a false sense of security. Pile on government agencies secretly being utilized and enforcers of political doctrine, disunity in Europe. The rise of imperialism in certain corners, religious fanaticism, and the daily economic and humanitarian crisis unfolding everywhere. It seems I can go on and on, sadly. So my fears stem from the question. Where is that brink where we collectively break? Sadly, I'm concerned we haven't learned our lessons and that we are not immune from a return to a fratricidal warfare. And while never again sounds cute, to me, it's more akin to whistling past the graveyard. It honestly scares me. Truth be told, I may not be giving enough credit to cooler heads, but I am concerned for this country, for my children's future, etc. So thanks again for the great program. I'm putting up with my rant, Chris. Chris, thank you. Uh, that is not a rant that you put up with. That is a serious uh, and and pretty brutally honest uh, account. So thank you very much. And where to start? I mean, I know I read through that, and clearly I'm reading, but Chris put some time into that, and uh, he made some good points. So I do feel like maybe you can think about these. I'll answer them the best of my abilities. They're just my opinion, but it's an important one. And let me start with this. And I'm not just saying this because I may disagree with Chris on some issues or agree with him otherwise. We're heading into an election year here in the United States. In the UK, right now, as I'm recording this, uh, there is a, uh, a vote, a ballot, to leave the European Union. I mean, these are big questions. By the time you hear this, by the way, that will be decided. Um, but you have to remember one thing. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, a conservative or progressive or liberal, or libertarian. One thing for sure is you're not going to get along with everybody during this election year. It's not going to happen. You're going to get angry. You're going to become passionate. You're going to become filled with rage to an almost unrealistic level, considering the topic of conversation. But it's very important that you remember this, whatever side you're on. I know it doesn't seem like it. I know you don't believe it. But it's important you realize, whether you are on the right or the left, and whether you can not see what the other side sees at all, you must remember, and I truly believe this, people want what they believe is truly in the best interest of the country. I hate when I hear politicians say, this party or that party wants to, quote, destroy America. Because nobody wants to destroy America who's voting. I mean, you, people want what they think is best for the country. You might not agree with it. You might not like it. You might not understand it. But no one is, is out to sabotage our country. And if you understand that, that you're both working toward a common good, just not the same good, or same interpretation of how to get there, I think we'd all be a lot nicer to each other. You may love Donald Trump. You may love Hillary Clinton. Uh, but just remember, everybody's going into this election year wanting the best for their country. And I don't think enough people realize that or want to hear that. And I think far too many people are willing to demonize the other side. By all means, disagree. That's why we're here. The fact that you're listening to this podcast tells me you understand that. 
uh, and come with an argument and come passionately, come with fire in your belly. Uh, but just recognize that the other side are not fools or idiots uh, and everybody wants what they think is best for the country. No one wants to, I don't think, destroy the country if they care enough to passionately argue one side or the other. That's my aside for an election year. Just a heads up. Number two, if you see a meme on Facebook that lists a statistic, do not share it. I don't care what it's about. Uh, And do not comment on it. Because you can't win. Arguing, Arguing on Facebook, nobody wins. Even if you win, you're still a loser. Uh, so don't do it. You can't win. Think about all the political debates you've ever had. Think about all the dinners you've ruined or nice events that's been spoiled by people arguing. And think about how many times you've gotten into a serious, passionate argument with somebody. Angrily yelling and spitting. And the other person suddenly stops and goes, Oh, you know what? You're right. I'll change my mind. Guess what? That has never happened in the history of politics. It will never happen. So don't do it. Don't take the bait. There's a lot of hot debates right now. Guns, taxes, um, all kinds of things. Don't take the bait. Just go vote. Just go vote. Um, If you do debate, know that uh, you are not going to win because nobody wins. Uh, Even if you're right, you won't win. And you'll probably just ruin whatever nice event you're at. So, uh, without further ado, we'll talk about Chris. Uh, You know, one of the things I like to think about and Chris, you indirectly asked this, but I'll, I'll sort of poke around at it, is the idea of another civil war. People always like that question. We're going to have another civil war. Even during the civil war itself, in the years leading up to it, the 1850s, people said, I believe the two-party system will be the downfall of this country. Um, and as it turns out, it almost was. But things are different now. Remember, the Civil War was fought on sectional lines. There were northern conservatives and southern liberals back then. Um, It was a sectional conflict. But America is not divided sectionally anymore. Uh, There is no more north and south, east and west. It just isn't. So, I don't know that a sectional Civil War could ever occur. And if it's not sectional, I don't know if a Civil War could occur otherwise. One of the great things about this country is that we vote... And whoever gets the most votes wins. That's it. Oh, let me preface that. Most of the time, that's what happens. A couple of times it doesn't. Boy, do we look silly. But, you know, that's part of a democracy. You know, you might not love the outcome, but the majority still get what they want. So I think that's important, too, to keep that in mind. If we had a government that didn't work, if we had a government where you voted somebody out of office and they miraculously stayed in, vis-a-vis some socialist or fascist country, uh, then that's when you start to see civil wars, when people lose faith in the system. Uh, But we have a pretty good system here in the United States uh, and in the UK, and we have to put our trust in it. Now, when the system starts failing, when votes aren't being counted, you're going to see agitation when people feel disenfranchised. But I think we're okay for for the near future. You know, politics are hot. They get you fired up, but uh, they're just that. And remember, I think everybody's working toward uh, what I would call common good. Even though you can't see it or you don't believe it, I think that's a lot of the disconnect that we have. Civil war, I'm not too concerned about. Uh, I think I think that, that driving brotherhood or sisterhood that connects us all uh, is, is stronger than 
than anything there. And I think our elections are a testament to that. I think the fact that we can have these brutal elections every four years and nobody dies and the results are just accepted and we all move on for the next election uh, is a testament to our ability to bounce back and our resolve to keep our republic intact as a nation. Um, because there's always another one. That's the great thing about uh, Americans, uh, and I'm partial to Americans because I am one, uh, is that if you lose an election, you're upset for a day, and then you move on to the next one. We'll get them next time. Uh, you don't you don't fight it. You don't uh, go in and try and overthrow a president. Uh, so that's a positive for us. My favorite part about the 2012 election was that was really, I think, the first time that opinion polls like totally jump the shark. Like every day, literally every day, there's a new opinion poll out, and that's going to happen this year again too. And uh, like it was election night, Obama had just won, and I'm not kidding. Before before 11:30, they had opinion polls out for 2016, and it's just like no. But then you also have to realize none of them had any idea Donald Trump would get the Republican nomination. My goodness, what a world! I cannot wait. However you feel about Hillary or Donald, however you feel about them, I cannot wait for those presidential debates. I mean, that will be probably the most watched presidential debate in history, and quite frankly, that'll be must-see TV, absolutely. Uh, so great. Awesome. So that's a few of the great emails we get from listeners. Like I always say, uh, if you reach out to me, I'm definitely going to respond to you. Not like maybe respond to you, but I will definitely respond to you um, because, you know, I don't have much else going on. And, and I think it's, I think it's important. You know, I think this is a, a starting point. It's a conversation point. Um, so there you have it. Uh, I did have one more question. Who am I going to vote for for president? Uh, and that's from Fred here in Pittsburgh. Uh, <laughs> you wish. I don't think so. Uh, I think we had a lot of interesting candidates that were in this race. I don't think there's any left that I'm terribly excited about, but what choice do you have? Um, some people are saying they want to vote libertarian to avoid voting for Trump. That is a great way to get Hillary Clinton elected even easier than to vote for a libertarian instead of Trump. Uh, some Democrats say they want to vote for the Green Party instead of Hillary. There you go. If you want President Trump, then vote for a third party. Third parties have never won in American presidential history. I'd be willing to guess they never will win in the future of presidential elections. Um, but boy, if I could just take a mulligan on this one, I think that'd be the best way to do it. Uh, I liked Governor Christie. I like the person more than the party. I think, especially as president, it takes a certain type of person to, to do the job. Um, Governor Christie, you know, nice guy. Likes Bruce Springsteen, was elected governor of New Jersey in a deep blue state as a red politician. So, uh, but he's gone. At any rate, uh, next week we'll get back on the horse. As for now, get your questions and comments in. I look forward to them. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.